Welcome to season three of the Jesus of Love podcast. I'm your host, Emily Mills. And I'm your other host, Brett Mills. We are founders, we're creatives, we're entrepreneurs, and we're activists. We're musicians, and we love Jesus. We've learned a lot serving the Jesus Said Love community, and this is the space we'll get to talk about. Ever learning, ever growing, ever loving. So come with us and explore how we can awaken hope and empower change together to create more space for love. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Jesus Said Love podcast. We are so glad that you're here. It's Brett. And it's just me today. I'm just giving you a little intro into a conversation we had back in December of 2020 with a guest that is is just a fantastic conversation. It's so good, and it's actually so long, we're splitting it into two parts. But we spent a good time with um, nationally known author uh, Jonathan Merritt. He writes for the New York Times and for a number of uh, high-profile publications, and he talks about faith and um, culture. And so he's just released a new book called Learning to Speak God from Scratch. And um, it's all about his transition from moving from the South uh, to New York City and how um, he had to learn uh, basically a new vocabulary and to stop learning or, or to stop saying words that we tend to use, you know, churchy words that you know, we all take for granted, those of us involved in the church, we think everybody understands what we're talking about when we talk about hedge of protection. <laughs> um, well, I don't even know why we use that, but we do. And uh, people who don't know God or don't know the church language would look at you like you're crazy because no one in real world speaks in phrases like hedge of protection or traveling mercies. So uh, it's a great conversation. Again, you're going to hear themes around Christmas because we were talking in December uh, but for the next two weeks, we just want you to enjoy and listen and be challenged by our conversation with uh, nationally known writer, Jonathan Merritt. Brett, are we just recording? We just yeah, want to jump just, in? Let's just go. Yeah, let's right. go. We can we can do all the... Because I, I, we have to include first. the hunting piece. <laughs> all right. I think that sounds great. <laughs> well, the rules are there are no rules, and we will you know, four letter words are welcome. Our listeners now there are little community knows that we talk about faith and social justice and God and exploitation. We, we just cut marriage. We cover all the things. Um, and really our whole point on this podcast for our listeners is to awaken hope and empower change. We, w- we want people to walk away with hope and we want people to walk away feeling like they can actually have agency and affect change in the world. Mm-hmm. So welcome to Jesus said love. We're excited. Oh my gosh. This is, this is, it's my pleasure. And I'm so glad to get to know uh, both of you. So thank you for having me on. Thank you. I won't call you Margaret, even though that's what your Zoom. Oh no, he gosh, changed it. He you. changed it. Oh, I changed it. I changed it. I changed it. Do you think we should still call him Margaret? <laughs> Margaret? You're welcome to. I will answer to that. I won't okay, answer so to we're, that for you. Okay, so we're all that's Southern awesome. people here. I think so, yeah. We we actually, not just Southern, but we we all three grew up Southern Baptist, which you talk about in your book, Jonathan um, yes. has written, just so our listeners are familiar, Jonathan is a faith and culture writer. He contributes to The Atlantic. He also has a podcast. Are you still doing the podcast, The Seekers and Speakers? 
You know, I only did one season of it, but okay. I will be, I will bring it back probably later this coming year. I w- I'm going to bring it back for, for a, a refresh. I like that. Yeah. yeah. I, I really, I really love the seekers and speakers. Um, not to be confused with preachers and sneakers who, <laughs> that's yes. a whole Which I, was I, say, I was so watching that and I was getting frustrated that you could only see his chest and I'm like, fix your uh, damn camera. And then I realized, wait, no, he likes to keep himself in mystery. Yeah. At the moment, at the moment, he is he is anonymous. When his book comes out, he won't mm. be anonymous. So yeah. TBD. I love, yeah, it will be big. Um, well, yeah. Jonathan has written a book. And the reason why I really was curious and excited to ask him to join our show is because the book is called Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and how we can revive them. So um, this book is power-packed, Jonathan. You actually take on kind of this role of you cover linguistics, you cover like all of these crazy like neurobiological studies. You, um, I mean, you're, a, and then you use your personal story and personal narrative. It is a, it is a body of, very comprehensive work for us to recover um, sacred language. And I think it's such a gift for right now. And it's such a gift for us personally, for me personally, in the line of work that we do with people who've been um, on the margins, people who are disenfranchised, women who are facing generational systemic poverty related issues. And, um, you know, don't really care about God unless God is loving. (laughs) I mean, it's like we've, we're located, you know, in Waco and in the South and we've all, all three of us and the women included that we, they have been inundated with language. They've been inundated with Bible Belt theology. And I think for a lot of us who care about the issues going on in our culture, we still care about recovering um, some of the sacred language. And you have given us a chance to hope again, I think, uh, for that. How did, you, how did you come about wanting to even write such a comprehensive book like this? Well, after being raised Southern Baptist and living in Georgia, I moved to to New York City. That's where I'm talking to you from today, from Manhattan. And what I found was was that I started to sort of bump into a bit of a language barrier. It, you know, not that I couldn't speak to people in everyday conversations, but that once the conversations turned spiritual. I found that I was sort of stalling out that that the the words and the phrases when I was insulated in a religious community in the deep south uh, worked well enough for me. Now I was running into all sorts of issues. Either people wouldn't understand what I was trying to say and they would ask for clarification, please. And then I would stammer and stutter trying to get out what it was I meant, but then realizing that not only did they not fully understand what I meant, but I didn't really understand either. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think I was, was being forced to ask a question that so many people don't ask, not just about 
sacred speech, but about any speech, which is what am I saying when I'm saying what I'm saying? Like, what am I really saying when I'm saying this? You know, if you, you got a room full of people at just about any church in America and, and they would, they would all be able to sing amazing grace, right? Mm -hmm. The most popular song maybe in, in Western history. And if you were then to pass out index cards to everybody in that room and say, on this index card, write what you think grace means. Well, you'd get just as many answers as people in the room. Mm -hmm. And that's an astounding thought that you could have that many people in that many churches in that many cities and counties and, and states across America who think that they're speaking a common language, mm -hmm. but really they're not. They're all sort of speaking different dialects yeah. of that language. But then when you cross even those barriers, you find that uh, you're encountering people who don't know what those words mean, or they, they think they know what those words mean, and, and they do with their definition, but they're using a wildly different definition than the word you're using. Uh, yes. And then, of course, you can run into situations, and I think I'm sure in your 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 work in ministry, you run into situations where people have been hurt by that language. Oh, that gosh. that 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 religious words have been weaponized yep. against them. And you know, once a word is weaponized against you. Uh, it takes on a kind of toxicity. It, it becomes yes. triggering. It becomes something you really, you don't want to get anywhere near because words have memory and they yes. carry with them memories and stories of yes. the context and the ways in which they've been used. And so many people have been hurt by their parents and their pastors and their friends and their teachers who use sacred speech to shame them or to scold them or to oppress them or to repress them. And those folks say, you know what, if that's what this is all about, I'm out. And, yeah. and quite frankly, I don't blame them. Yeah. yeah. So, Accountability. <laughs> Accountability. Right. Have you always been curious? Well, I have two questions. First of all, you're a super, I mean, I think in order to be a really great writer like you are, I think you have to be curious. And yet that curiosity costs you, right? Like mm -hmm. you start asking questions and you talk about this in the book too. I mean, just consider the heretic. I mean, go ahead. And if you're going to have curiosity about faith, about culture, about the overlap and inner workings of language of the Bible, of how we interpret it, of what we're saying about it, um, go ahead and know that the territory you're walking on is territory that could be deemed heretical. Mm -hmm. Have you always, I mean, at what point in your life did you go, it's worth more for me to be curious about this than the cost mm -hmm. of not asking the question? You know, um, I, I think of sometimes spiritual transformations are awakenings. Um, they happen in what seems like a moment. You know, something invades your consciousness, an alarm goes off. And there was the version of you before that moment and the version of you after that moment. I, I tend to think that, uh, that there are other transformations that are like birthing experiences. There's a long 
period of gestation mm-hmm. without which the actual emergence into this sort of new environment, this new consciousness, this new self would not be possible. Mm-hmm. And yet all of that is the same. So, so in other words, if you said, um, when were you born? You could maybe point to a moment, although even that moment is a, is a, is a set of moments. Uh, or you would point to a whole process. Yes. And I think for me, there was a whole process mm-hmm. uh, of early in my life, um, having a, a loving and a trusting and a close relationship with church and church people, with religion and religious people, and a series of disorientations, mm-hmm. disillusionments, mm-hmm. where you began to realize that um, the truth and the thing that you have for so long called the truth are not the same. Mm. And when you realize there is a chasm between those two things, that chasm has a disorienting effect, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you, how many people said, you know, I thought I could trust them and then I realized I couldn't. Yeah. So you have an image of a person you thought was the truth and now you have the truth and you've realized there's a chasm. Those things don't overlay as nicely as you thought. How many people have had a, a spouse that they thought was faithful? And realize they they that their spouse was not faithful. Disillusionment tends to not be localized. So so what's easy to happen is I don't just tr- I don't now just distrust that man or that woman. I distrust men or women, right. and that's a natural response. You know that that the depth of your pain is so alarming that you will act in any way that will prevent you or protect you from being damaged at that level again. Right. Uh, I think that a mature person over time will begin to process their experience and understand over time, again, it takes a a lot of time, that what was done by one Mm. is not necessarily representative of all. That's now right. you can you can use that as an excuse because there are people who say that you know uh, everything from Black Lives Matter to uh, people who have experienced religious trauma in the church, the the dismissive uh, nature of well that was just one bad apple. Uh-huh. What those of us who have walked these paths of pain start to realize is is that there are so many bad apples <laughs> and so many stories of people who have been poisoned by the rotten fruit, you begin to wonder if the whole orchard is irredeemable. Mm. And I think it takes someone who is deeply and passionately committed to cultivating that orchard, just to, to investing the work, to finding the good fruit that remains uh, in order to do that work. A lot of people aren't. A lot mm. of people just say, to hell with it. Like that's... Mm. Uh, it's not worth my time and effort. And quite frankly, for some people, the amount of energy required Mm -hmm. to successfully travel a pilgrimage of healing, Mm -hmm. there's no energy left over for trying Mm -hmm. to renegotiate your relationship with this toxic institution. Mm -hmm. And so I don't blame people who have walked away. But what I did find was in my life, 
as I cross that barrier from a insular religious context to a more pluralistic and post-Christian context, I felt that I didn't want to walk away. I, I didn't even know how. Mm. And so I was forced to renegotiate mm. my relationship with a world that had irrevocably changed. Mm. I love I love even that word renegotiate. Yeah. Um, I think it's a really powerful skill. And I think it's powerful in the context, even when I look at women who have negotiated and renegotiated their standing throughout Christian history. And I think of Rahab who negotiated her way and said, this is what I want for my family. Like, if you're going to come and do this, here's what I'm going to call the shots here. Um, In order to renegotiate, though, you have to you have to have some sense and some semblance of knowing that you are worth and that your faith is worth renegotiating, right? Like you in all of your kind of going, I don't want to lose. I don't want to like throw all the baby out with the bathwater. I don't want to lose faith altogether. Like I'm not willing to just throw it all away And in order for that transformation to happen, you talked about this chasm. In the book, I thought it was interesting. You have a chapter devoted to pain. And to me, when I look at that chasm of like, okay, I'm not going to totally turn my back. I've got to walk across somehow this chasm to re-engage, to renegotiate, to reclaim something of faith. Um, Pain really is the bridge. Pain and suffering really becomes a way forward to me. At least that's what it seemed like you were offering to us is in the evangelical world, we've not been real comfortable with pain. And so if we're not willing to accept the bad at some degree, we can't really claim the good. Yes, I think part of um, the process of um, disillusionment or disorientation, or you know, the word that people will use today is deconstruction. Yeah, if it's done well, you know, if you're deconstructing and you find something good, imagine if you were doing this in a physical space right? You're deconstructing a piece of furniture, but you found something really valuable in it. You would recognize the value of that and you would set it aside, Mm. right? So that it would be, it would remain. Um, Deconstruction is different than arson, where you just set it all, you burn it down. And uh, I, I think a lot of people are, I take a burn it down approach, when what they really, what I would suggest as an option might be, is deconstruction, a really healthy deconstruction. And so, you know, you talk about you have to know what, uh, the, the, what is good about the thing. I think of knowledge in an experiential sense, the way that the Apostle John uses it, to know, right? Like, I know who you are, but, and we've just met. I know things about you, mm-hmm. but your but Brett knows you. Mm-hmm. He knows you. He doesn't. He, it's not that he can rattle off more facts than I can. Yeah. 
It's that he has experienced you at a deeper level. And that is an experiential knowledge. It doesn't, it doesn't fit on a piece of paper, right? It's something that transcends uh, explanation. He knows you. In the same way, I think, too often, many people who will say, you know, they hate church or they hate religion. Um, if you press them, you will begin to stumble across these little things of value mm. that have not never been recognized and set aside. And so I'm able to look at my Southern Baptist upbringing and to recognize the parts of that that were harmful, damaging, that I felt like were coercive or manipulative, mm. uh, that I felt like in many ways um, stunted my intellectual and spiritual growth. But then I can also say, um, man, I'm really glad that in that tradition, I took uh, the sacred text seriously mm. because there's a lot of wisdom in the sacred text. Mm -hmm. Now, I wasn't taught how to engage with it, understand it, interpret it well, mm. because I grew up in, in, a, in a culture that embraced a kind of rigid literalism, yeah. which, is, which is unsustainable and unhelpful. And most people, quite frankly, aren't literalists, even though they think they are. But, you know, I live now at an Episcopal seminary mm. in Manhattan, and there are postulates, priests who are mm -hmm. training for ministry who live here as well. Mm -hmm. And we'll have a conversation and they will envy mm -hmm. the, the depth of knowledge that I have of the sacred text. Now, I have what Barbara Brown Taylor would call a holy envy mm -hmm. for, their, for their knowledge and experience of the liturgies and yeah. the rituals that can be employed for expansive spiritual growth and formation. Mm. But I'm coming to the table with a real gift that was given to me, which is um, a love, uh, a reverence, um, a regard for, and a knowledge of yeah. the sacred text and the, uh, of, of the Christian New Testament and the Hebrew scriptures. And so as I have begun to... Um, deconstruct my own faith. If, if you ever hope to get to reconstruction, which is right. the only way that you'll stay, right? The, if you ever hope to get to reconstruction, you have to have some raw materials to rebuild with. Mm. And that means that you've got to go through and say, wow, that was a good nail, right? Mm. That was a, that's a board that, that, uh, there's a lot, a lot of life left in that hinge. Yeah. And so that, that, or that as, as the old, work, as think. the old, um, you know, I'm in the land of fixer upper right now, but as we would say, you know, the house has good bones, mm -hmm. you know, we would look at it and say, those are some good bones there. Like, don't, don't throw out the joint. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. you know, what's interesting on this whole deconstruction idea <clears throat> in the tradition I was raised in, it would be threatened by that. It would totally be threatened by, you know, uh, wait, just you're gonna, deconstruction in general. Totally. What, what, maybe the Bible is not inerrant or it might have mistakes in it or wait, what you really are going to think mm -hmm. that or, you know, uh, whatever the issue may be. And I think, 
I think what's interesting about that is what when we say those things, we're we're presenting this idea of a God who's really small, who's scared by our questions. And yes. I just, in my view of God, I just think God's going, "Hey, I'm so confident who I am. <laughs> Knock yourself out, deconstruct away." Mm-hmm. And and, mm-hmm. and that's not offensive to me. That's not scary to me. But for whatever reason in our Southern evangelical traditions, it's you cannot question. I had somebody say not too long ago, hey, Brett, um, if you don't believe Genesis 1 through 9, you can't believe the rest of the Bible. Right. Mm-hmm. That is how we were raised. And I think, Jonathan, you talk about that at, even in your understanding of the fall of this literal, very, very literal. Like if you don't believe that, you can't know and trust God as your Savior. Mm-hmm. I mean, that mm-hmm. really was the fundamentalism um, undergirding the Southern Baptist evangelical. Yeah, I think that, I think that, um, I think that in, 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 in a pietistic tradition, uh, which, you know, evangelicalism is, um, although they, they really hate being accused of focusing on quote works or Mm -hmm. good works, but man, they do a lot of talking about good works and, and by conversely what they believe are bad works. Um, but life uh, and the spiritual life in particular are sort of um, reduced down to a, a list of to do's and to don'ts, mm-hmm. and it it makes uh, spirituality quite simple, which is why it's so alluring to people. Because mm-hmm. if you just sort of do this and don't do this, then you know. Uh, or you can conclude with confidence, or they might say certainty, that you're a good person, or you'll be safe in the afterlife, or uh, you know, all, all whatever your your end goal is, it's all based on sort of this uh, math equation. And so, I think that what happens for those of us who've left these contexts is beginning to do the hard work of deprogramming. Yeah, the spiritual muscle memory that reverts back to that. I mean, one of the things I often say is, is fundamentalism is a hell of a drug. And uh, those of us who have come out of fundamentalism so easily will deploy the same tactics in the opposite direction. A hundred percent. So right now we, now we start going, well, well, what are you doing about racism? And what are you doing about this? And what are you doing about this? And that becomes not just a really helpful conversation about how we can be more just and more loving and more kind, but it becomes judgmental. Mm-hmm. It becomes a behavioral standard for uh, putting a stamp of approval on somebody's own spiritual journey. And so if you deconstruct the way that a lot of deconstructed people behave, you realize that while they have deconstructed some of the beliefs and some of the theologies, that the mechanisms uh, are still there. And so we find, I think, through experience that um, old fundamentalist habits tend to die hard. Yeah, it is a programming. And I think that fundamentalism is, um, well, I think it's traumatic. I, I really believe that it's it's a spiritual abuse, that there's a lot of trauma that goes with, um, obviously, fundamentalism. And I think that we are bound to that trauma. I think that in our line of work and what we, you know, have learned about trauma and the body and the way it's stored and Mm -hmm. the wiring, um, 
you know, what fires together wires together as one of our psychologists say, I mean, right. It's like, we know that and we do that, which we don't want Mm -hmm. was done to us, but we continue repeating the pattern until there's, um, the grace somehow this opportunity, this, this process begins of letting go of, of really, really trying to open and become vulnerable once again in the face of such rejection and hurt Mm -hmm. and abuse. And that takes a crazy amount of courage. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about regarding this kind of fundamentalism, one of the things that you talk about in the book are these two studies, Marymount and Baylor studies that correlate views of God with, um, stressors with, uh, psychosomatic symptoms or outputs. Um, you Mm -hmm. talk about these views of an authoritarian God, a critical God, a distant God, and then a benevolent God. And that, Mm -hmm. that people who see God as authoritarian, um, critical or distant often have outputs of anxiety, depression, OCD. I think you listed off like these crazy, there's this crazy correlation between the way we view God Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. how our bodies are responding to that. Mm -hmm. Unpack that a little bit. Yes. Well, I mean, in, in, in a religious construct, God is, um, and this is not just a Christian view, um, but God represents a kind of, of ideal. God is an icon. God is the ultimate. God is the perfect. And so as a result of that, um, the, the, the idea is, is that if you want to be a good human, you would be God-like, mm. right? That you would, uh, in, in I'll, I'll use Christian language, in the Christian language, uh, we would do this in, in a number of ways. One, we would, we would talk about the image of God. So right from the beginning, we were carved to be like God, right? And so there's a connection made that I'm like you, right? We personify God, and then we draw a connection to say we are God-like in some way. Um, the, the, the next step, for Christians at least, is that we look at the life of Jesus and we have all of these commands to go and do likewise, right? Mm -hmm. And because a Trinitarian theology says Jesus and God are both different and the same, they are one. The idea is that, you know, as it's been said, that Jesus is what God looks like with skin on. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus becomes then the ultimate, the clearest conception of what it means to be God-like for a human. If that's what you believe, if you believe that the, the, the very best human you can be is to be as close to what God is or how God is, then um, it follows naturally, even if it's implicitly stated, that if your God is temperamental mm-hmm. and angry and kind of a jerk, maybe you will be too. And so then you have people, for example, you've got people in the public square who say nasty things about gay people, 
mm-hmm. or nasty things about Democrats or Republicans mm-hmm. or nasty things about Methodists or Episcopalians or Catholics or Buddhists. And they go out in the streets and they're angry and they're rude to their neighbor or they cut off their child or they kick somebody out of their church. And not only do they not feel bad about it, it feels simply divine. Holy. It feels like they're being in some way God-like. And that mm-hmm. is intoxicating. It is. It has a positive feedback mechanism that, that will perpetrate bad behavior. And you say, you know, um, I can't believe you would kick your son out of your house. Well, it's very easy to say, well, God got so angry, God killed God's son. Mm-hmm. So it, it begins to become a bad image of God is actually an easy rationalization for a bad image of what a human should be. And we find in the data that this is true. Mm-hmm. We find that the, if you believe in an angry God, you're more likely to be angry yourself. If you, if you believe that you have a temperamental, unpredictable, angry and involved parent, whose eyes are ever want on you, <laughs> who never sleeps and never slumbers, who's making a list and checking it twice, <laughs> then it's it naturally follows that you might feel a little anxious about that. Imagine growing up in a home where there were security surveillance cameras all around you and not one misstep could be overlooked. And that's essentially the dominant image of God in many religious cultures, which is why children who grow up in those in those settings often grow up to have a range mm-hmm. of really bad health outcomes well, that you we're sure only don't want beginning to, caught, to understand. You sure don't want to be caught making out when Jesus comes back. <laughs> right. right. You know what I mean? Right. When you're in high school because you got to got to honor true love weights. <laughs> Well, you know, and now you're asking another question, which is, okay, but wait, if there are all of these kind of moral laws in the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, which ones do we prioritize? Thanks for joining us. We hope this episode brought some light to your own story and hope for your journey. Make sure to subscribe and leave a comment. For more info on our work, visit JesusSaidLove.com. Until next time. Share the love.